Hi, my name's Nick Smith, founder and creator of Part-Time Pilot. Now, after three years, five flight instructors, and over $22,000 out of my bank account, I was finally able to achieve my dream and become a private pilot. Now, I have a bachelor's and master's in aerospace engineering and over 10 years experience as a flight test engineer. So if it was that difficult for someone like me, no wonder eight out of 10 student pilots never end up becoming a pilot. So this is why I created Part-Time Pilot, and this is why I'm creating this podcast. This podcast will be your audio ground school and just another way Part-Time Pilot is making flight training easier and more consumable for you. So with over 300 students and counting that have used our content to pass the FAA private pilot exams, I hope that you can use this podcast to become the next student to do so. So thank you and I hope you enjoy listening to the Part-Time Pilot audio ground school podcast welcome everybody to the audio ground school podcast i'm nick smith from part-time pilot thank you for joining me on what is november 7th is when this should be released so i want to start as you can kind of if you've been listening kind of start the each episode with maybe some pointers or a tip or something that's on my mind before we get into the lesson. And today I want to talk about something that I'm asked a lot this time of year as we approach the holidays and the winter months. As pilots and in flight training, these can be a difficult time to get flight training done. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest and I started my pilot training in the Pacific Northwest and I thought it was, you know, exclusive to the Pacific Northwest or the Midwest or places where it gets cold and snowy and rainy in the in the winters and even spring and fall but it it's not just exclusive to that now even here in San Diego in the winters we get low marine cover more and more extended through the mornings here in in San Diego so no matter where you are the, the the seasonal change can have an effect on the ceiling and the effects on the ceiling make it so that flying, you know, private pilot VFR difficult. So I get asked a lot, is it, should I wait to start flight training until after the winter, right? Until after these months of, of bad possible weather, low ceilings is over, or should I start right now? So here is my answer. What I tell everybody, you can definitely start right now but it is going to be more difficult. So what I advise, if time is not a factor, I actually advise that this is the perfect time to do your ground training. If you've listened to me before, I've told you that the number one reason why I see student pilots fail, they get to a point in their flight training where they get mentally behind the aircraft because they do not have a good understanding of the ground knowledge. And this is because a lot of students just want to jump in straight to flight training. They hold off that studying, you know, that evil, gruesome, gruesome studying that no one wants to do. They procrastinate that till the very end. But because they, they just think, okay, as long as I get the FA written done before my check ride, then I can just do bang, 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 and then I'll be done. But they don't realize that there's a point in your training where you're going to need to know the stuff you're supposed to learn in ground in the ground knowledge, in the ground school. That's why they have you learn this stuff in the ground school. 
So it gets to the point in your flight training where you're behind the aircraft and you start to make mistakes. So these winter months, especially if you live somewhere where there's low ceilings and, and minimal VFR days, this is the perfect time to just buckle down, get a great grasp on the ground training, spend you know an hour a day, maybe even less, maybe just 30 minutes a day, make that habit of studying 30 minutes a day, and in three, four months, you will be have such a good understanding of the ground training. You you can then pass your FAA written exam, and you can jump straight into flight training as the weather starts to clear up. The other thing that you can do, because money is an issue for almost all of us, is that you can save money during these winter months. Save as much as you can during these winter months and have a lump sum of cash that you can then take from a flying flight training fund that you can take from once the weather gets good. When the weather gets good, especially in the spring, like in the Pacific Northwest, the, the weather can be very hard to judge and predict. Sometimes there's weeks where it's just great, amazing weather, and then it'll go two weeks of absolutely no VFR weather. You want to be able and ready to fly as much as possible during those weeks and those days where the weather is good. So you don't want to be, you want to have as little constraints as possible on the amount that you can fly. You already have the constraint of time, right? You probably have a, a job or other responsibilities. Maybe you can only fly two to three times a week on the weekends. But you don't want to add an additional constraint of paying paycheck to paycheck. I ran into that problem and some of us can't help it. And I get that and that's okay. As long as you try and be consistent with your flight training. But if you can rid yourself of that constraint, where let's say you can only fly once a week, you know, because until you get paid, then you got, then you can, you can fly a couple more times. But if you have that lump sum of money and there's a good weather week and you can fly three, four times, that is going to be key you because the number one thing you want to avoid is gaps in your training. That's when you'll start to, when you, let's say there's bad weather and you can't fly for a couple weeks, or let's say you just fly once because you can only afford once a week. And then, you know, the next couple weeks you don't fly at all that it's your progress is going to be very, very slow and you're not going to be able to keep up the skill and you're going to start to lose skill. And you're going to have to start redoing trainings. That's exactly what happened to me. You know, I know in a perfect world, not everyone can, can save a lump sum of cash, but these winter months are perfect for doing that. So just set aside the money as if you were flight training and put it in a savings account for just for flight training so when you do start you can fly as much as possible and then at the same time get your ground school done you can do it with us if you want we have you know full money back guarantee lifetime access parttimepilot.com check us out still have yet to have a student fail their exam and we included in that is a bonus program which is five step five study hacks and it talks about getting over the overwhelm and has actually a study schedule where you can do about one hour a day and finish in about three months. So that would be perfect during the winter months to just follow that schedule, go through the ground school content, pass the effort, and then by the time the weather gets good, you'll have some cash to use, you'll be ready mentally, and the flight training is not only going to be easier, but you're going to be more set up for success. So do you have to do that? No, you can totally do that. 
but it's going to be a little bit more difficult. It's going to be a little bit more of a grind. So why not, if you have the time, make things easy on yourselves and plan it out a little bit. Be smart about it. Okay, so that's my rant for that. Let's get on with today's lesson, which is going to be lesson one of section four. So in our last episode, we had a bonus episode where we talked about those five-step study hacks that I was talking about. So if you haven't checked that out, go check that out. That's a, a bonus course that we have when students sign up for our ground school to help you get over, make a plan for your studying, and know how to study. Don't just memorize test questions, actually learn the fundamental principles. So that's a good episode if you haven't caught that. But before that, in episode 12, I believe, we finished section three, which is on pilot certifications, qualifications, and regulations. This is section three of the online ground school. So now we're starting section four, which is on aircraft airworthiness requirements. And the first lesson is going to be on required documentation. Then we might get into lesson two, required inspections. And maybe, but probably not, but lesson three would be required equipment. All right, so without further ado, let's get into lesson one of section four of the Part-Time Pilot Online Ground School on required documentation. Along with your personal documents, you must also have documents supporting the aircraft that you are flying, just like in a car when you need your driver's license, but you also need your car insurance and car registration. No person may operate a civil aircraft unless it has within it the following. Airworthy, airworthiness certificate, registration certificate, radio operator's license, and that is for international flights only. So if you're not flying international, which probably you won't be uh, as a student pilot, then you do not need a radio operator's license. Operating limitations and weight and balance. Many students use the mnemonic device acronym AERO. So A, airworthiness certificate, R, registration certificate, R, radio operator's license. Again, that's only for international flights. O, operating limitations, and W, weight and balance. So AERO, to help them remember the required documents of the aircraft. And this mnemonic just means... So mnemonic device, if I haven't said it, it means it's a tool to help your memory. And it, it's hard to spell and hard to say sometimes. So if, if I say mnemonic or mononic or something like that, so please forgive me. But anyways, I'm, now, now that we know, so AERO, again, that's airworthiness certificate, registration, radio operator's license, operating limitations, and weight and balance. I'm going to go through each one of these and give a little bit more detail on what exactly that means to be required for each of these. So for airworthiness certificate, that's the A in arrow. This is good for the life of the aircraft as long as the required maintenance is performed per all airworthiness directives and required inspections. So that will be the next lesson on re required inspections. So as long as you keep the aircraft in airworthy condition by doing the required inspections, and performing all maintenance per the squawks and airworthiness directives, then your airworthiness certificate is still valid. So as long as you meet all the requirements to keep it airworthy, you don't you never need to get a new airworthiness certificate unless you change something major on the aircraft. The next one, registration certificate. This is the first R of Aero. It is good for three years or if the aircraft changes ownership. 
if an airplane is operating with a dealership certificate or certification of registration, the aircraft must be immediately registered by any new owner who purchases the airplane. So if you're going to buy an airplane from a dealer, it probably has a dealer certif certification of registration. And then once you buy that, you'll have to get one for you. And then it's good every three years. So you have to renew it every three years, just like a car. You have to renew it every, I think, a year, right? So you just have to renew it every three years or if the aircraft changes ownership. Radio operator's license, we already talked about. That's for international flights only. So just remember it. But remember that it's probably not required for you for most of your flights. The, that's the second R of Arrow. Then the O of Arrow is operating limitations. So these are the operating limitations of the aircraft. These can be found in the current FAA approved flight manual or pilot operating handbook. So that's AFM or POH, whatever is the FAA approved document for your aircraft. Sometimes they're AFMs, approved flight manuals, and sometimes they're called POHs. So just make sure you know which one is which for your aircraft. It's supposed to be in your aircraft at all times because of this required documentation. It contains the operating limitations, which has to be... So remember, when I, when I first started, before I said any of these in Arrow, I said no person may operate a civil aircraft unless it has within it the following. So these documents have to be within your aircraft in order for you to operate it. So inside the aircraft during your pre-flight check, you're going to check for all these documentations. And the operating limitations are going to be found inside that AFM or POH. It'll also be, so operating limitations may also be found elsewhere. So it's sort of a combination of where the operating limitations can be found. So try and think if you've had, if you've been in a, a small aircraft before, or if you've done a few flight lessons, try and think of where else there might be some operating limitations. And if you think hard enough and smart enough, you might think of maybe things like the instruments themselves or the dashboard might have some sort of placard that says like a maximum speed or a maximum vacuum pressure or something like that that's placarded on the cockpit dashboard and is an operating limitation for your aircraft. So it's not just everything in the AFM or POH. It's a combination of what's in the AFM or POH and what's on the instruments or placarded, placarded on the dashboard. And it could be so so it could be markings as well, like on the airspeed indicator that might not be found in the AFM or POH, but it's on the airspeed indicator. It has your never exceed speed. It has the operating limitations, you know, the structural cruising speed, the stall speed, those things are marked on the airspeed indicator. And they may not be, they probably will be in the POH or AFM as well, but they may not be. So again, it's the combination of what's in the POH or AFM and what's on your actual aircraft marked or placarded. So, so that's operating limitations. The last letter is W and that stands for weight and balance of the aircraft. Again, this is going to be found in the flight manual or POH, but this needs to be done for each flight for the safety of your flight. But what they mean is they want the the information that allows you to be able to calculate that weight and balance. And if you are ramp checked, you know, you're about to fly and some FAA personnel comes up and asks you for the weight and balance, 
you're going to want to show them that you also calculated the weight and balance for your flight as well, just so they know that you're, you're flying safely and being a good pilot. But they're also going to want to see the POH or AFM that shows the weight and balance information, like the empty weight, the arm distances for each uh, thing on the aircraft, and everything else that's installed in the aircraft and included in that empty weight. So they want the up-to-date weight and balance information for your aircraft, which is going to be, again, found in the flight manual or POH. So to re review, no person may operate a civil aircraft unless it has within it the following. Airworthiness certificate, registration, radio operator's license, that's for international flights only, operating limitations, and weight and balance. So when you do your pre-flight check, part of your checklist should be one of the first things I did was checked for these documents to make sure no student took them out, they weren't missing, anything like that, because you're not, your aircraft is not airworthy unless it has these documents inside of it. So you look usually behind the pilot seat, there's a little behind the seat, you know, there's that like pocket behind the seat. Usually that's where they store the logbook for the aircraft, the airworthiness certificate, the registration certificate, a radio operator's license if they has one, and then the AFM or POH, which contains within it, again, the weight and balance information, the operating limitations, and the operating limitations might also be placarded on the aircraft or marked on the instruments, but those never leave the aircraft, right? They're placarded, they're stuck on the, the dashboard. So, all right, so that has been required documentation. It's a pretty quick lesson, and I've reviewed it a few times, I think, so hopefully that sets in your brain. Just remember arrow. And remember the little nuances of each, like the operating limitations and the radio operator's license. And we will continue on to the next lesson. So next up is lesson two of section four of the online ground school. And lesson two is on required inspections. So required inspection. In order for the aircraft to stay airworthy, remember we talked about the airworthiness certificate that has to be in the aircraft for you to be able to legally fly it. And the airworthiness certificate does not expire as long as you keep the aircraft in airworthy condition. So in order it to stay airworthy, aka legal to fly per the FAA, the following inspections must be performed in the de defined time frame. So each of these has a different time frame. There is a mnemonic device for this, and then you have to kind of add on to remember each of these. This is one of the most commonly quizzed things on your check ride so on your check ride you're going to have to prove that your aircraft is airworthy so you're going to have to show that all these inspections are up to date and so what you're going to do is you're going to get the aircraft maintenance logbooks you're going to see when that last inspection is and you're going to point to that in the logbook and say here look this inspection was done on this date and your examiner is going to be like okay now is that is that legal is that airworthy is that within the defined time frame for that sort of inspection and you'll have to say yes you know an annual is required every 12 calendar months this was eight months ago so we're good for another four months whatever so you got to remember those time frames for sure so i'll i'll try and say these a couple times to try and instill these in your brain while you're listening to this you know whatever it is you're doing it's going to take some repetition to remember this stuff. The mnemonic device is only kind of for the inspection names themselves, and then you have to add on yourself and remember how often these inspections are due. Okay, so let's get to it. 
So the mnemonic device is aviates, A-V, and instead of I in aviates, it's a one. So aviates with a one as the I. So A-V-1-A-T-E-S. And the first A stands for annual, the annual inspection. This is required every 12 calendar months, just like it sounds. But remember, calendar months, we've mentioned this before with the medical certificate. A calendar month, mean, month means that you get to, to the end of the month. So if you had an annual done on January 10th, then the next annual, let's say January 10th, 2022, the next annual would not be due January 10th, 2023. You would get the rest of the month. So it'd be due January 31st, 2023. I think there's 31 days in January. I never memorized the days of the month like that song. But you get what I'm saying. You get that rest of the month. So it's 12 calendar months. And it's required for both VFR and IFR flight. So again, this is another thing we want to remember. Some of these are just required for IFR. The aircraft you fly, the training aircraft at your flight club or your flight school is going to have these inspections done because that training aircraft is being used for both VFR private pilot trainings and IFR training. So they're going to have both of these done. But again, this might be a question you get asked. For some of these that are only required for IFR, the examiner might be like, "Well, do we need do we need that for our flight today?" And if you're you know if you're on a VFR private pilot checkride, then you would say, "No, this is only required for IFR." But it's still nice to know that it's you know that it's been inspected and it's within the limits. So, so annual is every twelve calendar months. It's an annual inspection. It's one of the larger inspections. So they kind of inspect the, the entire aircraft during the annual. And usually the, the airplane is down for a day or two during the annual inspection. And it's required for both VFR and IFR, again, every 12 calendar months. Okay, so that's the A in AV8s. The V it stands for VOR. So the VOR instruments and the whole entire system, including the antennas, the instruments and the radios need to be inspected, that VOR system, every 30 days for IFR flights only. So this one might be one of those ones where the examiner might ask you, are we up to date on our VOR inspection and do we need it? You can you can have already before your check ride tabbed, you know, where in the the maintenance logbook that VOR inspection was done and signed off in the date. You can see that it's less than 30 days. You can say, yes, it, it, it was done 22 days ago, but we don't need it for our flight, but it's still nice to know that it's within specs for IFR flights. So again, VOR every 30 days. So think every month pretty much required for IFR flights only. Okay, that's the V of Aviates. Now, remember the I is actually a 1 in Aviates. So the 1 stands for a 100-hour. So the 100-hour inspection, every 100 hours of aircraft operation per the tachometer, the 100-hour needs to be done. So this is only required for aircraft used for hire. 
and it's both IFR or VFR. So it doesn't care whether the flights are IFR or VFR, but it does care that it's aircraft used for hire. And we'll get into what for hire means here in a second, but just, just know that, remember, it's aircraft for hire only. Again, that might be a question you get asked on your check ride, but we'll get to it in a second. A 100-hour inspection can be completed up to 10 hours after the hour it is due if and only if the aircraft is flying to the place to get the inspection completed. So you can fly over 100 hours, right? As long as you're flying the aircraft, let's say it, you're at some airport where there is no maintenance hangar, and you're right at the 100 hours, so you can fly it somewhere to get that 100 hour done up to 10 hours over. So for example, if your 100 hour is due at 1202.2 hours on your tachometer, so 1202.2 hours, you could take off at 1202.1 hours and fly for 10 hours and land at a place where the inspection is completed before 12 12.2 hours so as long as you don't go over that 10 and you're flying it to a place for the inspection to be completed then you can go over that 100 hours but again only by 10 hours in this scenario the faa says that the excess hours the hours over the 100 hour point must be included in the calculation for the next time an inspection is due so in the example we covered the next due time would be 1302.2. So what that means is, okay, our 100 hours is due at 1202.2 hours. But we actually get our 100 hour done 10 hours later, so at 12.2. That, so what this means is it doesn't restart at the time we actually got it done at so it's not 100 hours from 1212 it's 100 hours from 1202 so it's every 100 hours on the tachometer so the next time it would be due is 1302.2 so 100 hours from when it was was originally due not 100 hours from when you actually got it done and again it's 100 hours for hire so what does for hire mean Again, I mentioned that the 100 hours do every 100 hours for aircraft for hire, both IFR and VFR flights. So for hire means when the owner provides the aircraft and a pilot for the flight. So that would be like when a flight school, the aircraft are owned by an owner and the flight school is providing the flight instructor with the student. So the student you know, is provided a flight instructor and an aircraft that would be for higher flight. If the student is flying solo and they're just they're, at that point, they're just renting the aircraft from the owner. So there's no pilot provided by the owner, then that would not be for higher flight. Also, if you're flying at like a flying club where flying clubs, they do like basically a part a partnership of everyone in the flying club has partial ownership of the aircraft. So when you fly with an instructor in that aircraft, you are basically the owner, you're part owner of that aircraft. So because the owner is part of that flight, 
that would not be considered for hire. So another example of something that is for hire would be like if you were to go fly with a pilot on like a scenic tour in Hawaii or something, then that would be for hire. So again, 100 hours is only for hire. Your flight school is likely going to track those hours as for hire. Your flight club may not, again, because you technically are part owner of that aircraft. So you'll want to make sure if, if that's the case for wherever it is you're flying. And if, like I said, if, if the owner is flying in the aircraft, then it's not considered for hire. If the owner is providing the pilot and the aircraft, then it is for hire. So that was the one or the I in Aviates. The next A in Aviates is for altimeter. This is required every 24 calendar months. So again, that's the calendar month. So you get told the end of the month. And this is required for IFR flights only. So like the VFR, the, or sorry, like the VOR, this is required for IFR flights only. So again, something to remember on your check ride when your examiner might ask you, is the altimeter, has it been checked within a lot of time? And you'll say yes, but it's only required for IFR flight. Okay, the next one is transponder. Transponder, so this is the T. Transponder is required every 24 calendar months. So we had the altimeter, which is every 24 calendar months. Then we have the transponder every 24 calendar months. And that's required. So the transponder is required for IFR and VFR. It doesn't matter IFR, VFR, but it matters where it is you're flying. So a transponder is required for flight within a mode C veil flight inside class A, B, or C airspace, flight above class B or C airspace, and flight above 10,000 feet MSL. So you need a transponder to fly in those areas. If you're not flying in those areas, like let's say you're flying in class D or E airspace or even class G uncontrolled airspace, then you do not need a transponder and you would not need the required transponder inspection. However, you might want, with you on the aircraft, you might want to get it inspected just in case you need to traverse through any of those areas, you know, within a mode C veil, within class A, B, or C, above class B or C, or flight above 10,000 feet MSL. In some sort of diversion or emergency situation, you'll want to be up to date on your transponder make sure that works. It's also going to help you with navigation, talking to ATC if you're doing any sort of cross-country flight. So unless you want to be totally cut off from the world, then go ahead, don't do that. Just fly an uncontrolled airplane and don't do that. But I would recommend, highly recommend, making sure that your transponder is checked every 24 calendar months. So that was a transponder. That was the T. The E in Aviates stands for ELT, which is the Emergency Locator Transmitter. We talked about what the ELT is in Section 2, which was Operation of Aircraft Systems. I can't remember which episode that was, but it was the first you know, one to six episodes or so of the Audio Ground School. So the ELT requires a functional check every 12 calendar months, and the battery must be replaced at half its useful life, half its used life, or after an hour of cumulative operation. 
the half-life will almost always be printed on the battery itself of the ELT. And the ELT is required for both VFR and IFR flight. Okay, so let's review that. ELT, the E in Aviates, is required for both VFR and IFR. And it requires two things. A functional check every 12 calendar months, so an inspection, just like we're talking about. But also the battery must be replaced either at its half, its used life, so at its half-life, which will be, again, printed on the ELT battery itself, or after one hour of cumulative operation. So if you have a rough landing and it turns on the ELT and it's used for an hour, then it'll need to, the battery will need to be replaced. Or if it's used you know, 30 minutes one, time, one day and then 30 minutes the next day, that's a cumulation, a cumulative hour total and you would want to replace the battery at that point. So either the half-life or one hour of use total, it needs to be replaced, and then the, the inspection every 12 calendar months. And again, that's for VFR and IFR flight for the ELT. Okay, the last letter of Aviates is the S, and it stands for static and pedo. So the static and pedo system, that consists of the static ports on your aircraft. So any static ports on the outside of your fuselage or the wing, and the pedo probe that hangs off your wing, whatever, if you have one or two on your aircraft. So those pedo probes, those pedo static probes, and the static ports on your aircraft, and the lines through those to the pedo and static probe instruments, like the airspeed indicator, the altimeter, and the VSI. Again, we covered what the static and pedo system was consists of and how it worked in the operation of aircraft systems so again that was the first few episodes of the podcast so if you didn't catch that go check that out it's a very very useful episode so you're going to need to check that system that it's working correctly and not clogged or or broken broken leaks or anything like that every 24 calendar months again that's the calendar months you get toward the end of the month and this is only required for IFR flight. So it's not for VFR flight, it's for just IFR. So again, that's also something you want to remember. So that I know that was a lot. Let's review quickly. So Aviates stands for Annual VOR 100-Hour Altimeter Transponder ELT Static and Pedo. The annual is due every 12 calendar months for VFR and IFR. The VOR is every 30 days, IFR only. 100 hour is due every 100 hours per the aircraft tachometer, and it is for both IFR and VFR, for, but it's only for higher. The altimeter is every 24 calendar months for IFR only. The transponder is every 24 calendar months, and that doesn't matter VFR if IFR, it just matters whether you need your transponder or not. So if the transponder is required in the airspace that you're flying in. The ELT, functional check every 12 calendar months, and the battery has to be replaced at its half-life or cumulative hour of operation, and that's required for both VFR and IFR. And then static and pedo every 24 calendar months for IFR only. The way I like to remember it, as I, I remember aviates, I write down you know, annual VOR, 100-hour altimeter, transponder, ELT, static, and pedo. And then the next thing I remember is I write down VFR and IFR. So annual is, is for both. VOR is IFR, 
only. 100 hour is for both, but for hire. Altimeter is IFR only. Transponder is for both, but depends if you need a transponder. ELT is for both, and static and pedo is IFR. So the ones that are IFR only are static and pedo, altimeter, and VOR. And then I write down how often it's needed. There are three that are every 24 calendar months, so that kind of makes it, I kind of remember, okay, when are the 24 calendar month ones? That's altimeter, transponder, and static and pedo. Then the every year ones are ELT, which is every 12 calendar months, plus the battery has to be replaced. And then the annual, which is every 20 or 12 calendar months. And then you have the 100 hour, which is easy, every 100 hours. And then the VOR is the last one to remember every 30 days. So I kind of like break it down to, okay, remembering the names, remembering if it's IFR, VFR, and then remembering how often it is required. And there's a few that are, yeah, I kind of lump them together in my mind, the 24 calendar month ones, the annual ones, and then the 100 hour, I don't have to remember because it says in the name 100 hour, and then VOR is every 30 days. Okay, so that's AV8s, that's been required inspections. So now that you know the documentations and inspections you'll be required to have for both yourself and the aircraft, you know the inspections required to keep these documents current. So that's what we've covered this episode, and you know some of the speed limitations of the aircraft. Are we ready to fly? The answer is not quite. The next step is determining the minimum amount of working equipment we will need in order to fly. In order to fly. The inspections and documents give you the most minimal list of equipment needed in order to make an aircraft airworthy, but more equipment is required to fly in specific conditions. These conditions depend on the weather and airspace you plan to fly with, and that's what we'll cover in the next lesson. So we have covered two lessons so far of section four on aircraft airworthiness requirements of the part-time pilot online ground school. We covered lesson one, which was on required documentation. Remember that was arrow, the mnemonic device arrow. And then we covered lesson two, which was required inspections. And that mnemonic device was aviates. So again, these are required things that you must meet for your aircraft to be airworthy and legal to fly per the FAA. I have two videos, one for the required documentations and arrow, and one for the required inspections and aviates, which I'll post in the show notes for you guys to review. Okay, this is a good time to take a quick break, and I want to give a quick announcement when we take this break for you future pilots out there that I think you guys might find helpful and interesting. Hey, what's up, future pilots? Do you still rent or borrow your aviation headset from your flight school? I remember when I was a student pilot, I definitely borrowed for over a full year from my flight school before I was gifted my own set. But flying in Southern California, I can tell you right now that every student who borrowed those headsets was just filling those ear pads with sweat and grime every single time. And every single time I put on those headsets, I thought about that. And in fact, there was quite often when those headsets would stop working because they had so much use by so many different students. So it was kind of an inconvenience before I had my own set of headsets. But at the time, like it makes sense because I wasn't willing to fork over 500 to to $1,000 for a headset. You know, I wasn't willing to give up. That's like 
four to six flight lessons. So I couldn't afford that for a quality pair of headsets. Well, with Core Aviation, you can get a quality, durable, and good-looking headset for less than $200 or even $100. So I heard of Core from a friend and had to try them out myself. I'm always on the lookout for ways that my students can save money while still getting a quality product. So I went out and I bought a set of KA-1 Core headsets for my own and was amazed at the similarities in comfort and audio quality that they had with my Bose headsets or the David Clark models that I had borrowed from the flight school. So this Core KA-1 headset, let me just tell you some of the things that comes with this headset at the low price of under $200. It's got five-year manufacturer warranty service in the US, high-density acoustic foam ear cups with best-in-class passive noise attenuation, up to 50% higher industry standard passive noise reduction rating of 24 dB, ultra soft silicone gel ear seals that allow your ears to breathe so they don't get super sweaty up there, dual volume controls for quick adjustments in each ear, electric noise canceling flex boom microphone for quiet communication, gold plated plugs for best connection and corrosion resistance and to limit the amount of times you have calm issues while you're up there flying, very, very important. And it even has a three and a half millimeter audio port for iOS, Android, MP3 compatibility if that's something you want to do. And the best part is that the ones I got are still going strong after three years of continuous use. And sometimes I give my passengers my Bose ones and I use the core aviation ones. So to all, everyone that's listening that wants your own headset and wants to you know, be that official pilot and not borrow those sweaty rental headsets at your flight school, go check out core aviation at coreheadset.com and this is core with a k so that's k-o-r-e headset.com or k-o-r-e h-e-a-d-s-e-t.com and then use the coupon code here's the even cooler part coupon code part-time pilot to get 10 percent off so you guys know how to spell part-time pilot that's no spaces p-a-r-t-t-i-m-e-p-i-l OT, part-time pilot, no spaces. Use that coupon code, you'll get 10% off. And right now, Core Aviation is doing a sale and they have no shipping costs. So you, shipping is free. So that means you can get their P1 general aviation headsets, which are like normally $120. You can get the, and now they're like 109 on sale for 109 You get free shipping and then you get an additional 10% off if you use the coupon code part-time pilot. So you can get your own headset that I that is comes highly recommended by myself for less than a hundred dollars. So, Core is a great, great new company, and they are awesome first headset for students. So go check it out, and they also look pretty cool, I think, and they're comfortable. So go check those out again. It's coreheadset.com. Core with a K. Use coupon code Part Time Pilot. Okay, back to the lessons. This is lesson three of section four of the online ground school, and this is on required equipment. So we covered required documentation, required inspections, and now we need to know the required equipment that we need to have on our aircraft to be considered airworthy. So the required equipment, the minimum required equipment broken down by the FAA is going to be in 91.205. Now, I don't use the language from the FARs or talk about what number the FARs are a lot. And I do that on purpose because 
the FARs can have very legally type sounding language that can be very confusing and can really put students to sleep. I remember trying to read specific FARs multiple times, trying to understand what the heck they actually meant. So I specifically wrote our entire online ground school without using the FARs language so that it was like it was just me and you talking. I was teaching you from my own words, my own plain English. We're all, you know, same language as you so that you could understand and then if you wanted to go look it up in the fars then you could go so and do that so anyways but this one if you want to look it's 91.205 and it's required equipment and it breaks it down for vfr so this is all for vfr flight which you as a private pilot are restricted to and it breaks it down into day required equipment during daylight hours and required equipment for nighttime hours so for day Daytime hours, the VFR required equipment, I use the mnemonic device ACA FTSE. That's A-C-A-F-O-O-T-S-E-A, ACA FTSE. Now you may have heard Goose a Cat or Tomato Flames. And I have a video, which I'll link to in the show notes, where I talk about why I don't like those ones. They're not 100% perfect. I know they're easy to remember, like tomato flames and goose a cat, because they're actual words or phrases. I mean, no one says goose a cat or tomato flames, but they're actual words. But akafutsi to me was just as easy for me to remember, and it it flows better, and it has every single requirement for day flight. So you're not gonna forget about anything when you use akafutsi. So that's what I teach in the online ground school, and that's what we'll use here. So again, ACAFTSE, the A stands for airspeed indicator, the C stands for compass, the A, the next A stands for altimeter, then the F stands for fuel gauge in each tank, then the first O is oil temperature indicator, the second O is oil pressure indicator, then the T is tachometer, the S is for seatbelts and harnesses, the E is for ELT, and the A is for anti-collision lights. Now, I'll review that again because you're listening. I want you to hear it repetitively so it engraves in your mind. But if you're listening and you hear altimeter or ELT or something like that and you thought, well, wait a minute, those the altimeter inspection was only required for IFR, and this is required equipment for VFR. So which is it, IFR or VFR? Well, the ins- required inspections is different than required equipment. So for both VFR and IFR, you are required to have an altimeter in your aircraft. But for VFR, there is no requirement to get it regularly inspected. You as the pilot should definitely pre-flight check it and make sure that it's working. But you don't have to log a inspection every 24 calendar months like you do for IFR. So in IFR, you are required to inspect it every 24 calendar months. VFR, you aren't required to inspect it, but you still are required to have it. So that's the difference here. So again, that was ACAFTSE. This is for day VFR. So it's flight during the day for VFR. And again, that's airspeed indicator, compass, altimeter, fuel gauges, oil temperature and oil pressure, tachometer, seatbelts and harnesses, ELT, and anti-collision lights. ACAFTSE. All right, so that was day VFR. Now we have night VFR. And for night VFR, we use the mnemonic device flaps. And this is the most common one used and one that I like to keep because it encompasses everything you need. Now, 
Fortnite, it's not just these pieces of equipment covered under flaps. It's everything we just covered under day for ACA FTSE, day VFR, plus these included in flaps. So to fly night, you need everything that's required during the day, plus a few extra pieces of equipment, which is covered under this flaps. So F-L-A-P-S, the F stands for fuses or circuit breakers. The L stands for landing light. The A stands for anti-collision lights. And if you're thinking, hey, didn't we mention that in day VFR? We did, but we're just going to repeat it, and I'll tell you why in a bit. The P is for position lights, a.k.a. nav lights. And the S is for source of electricity or altimeter. So that's flaps, fuses or circuit breakers, landing lights, anti-collision lights, position lights, and source of electricity. So a few notes on each of these. For fuses and circuit breakers, you have to have a replacement set of circuit breakers or three of each fuse. So older aircraft used to use fuses, but they would pop out and you have to replace the fuse and have three, three replacements of each fuse. And this gets pretty taxing and annoying while flying. So they move the circuit breakers. You can try popping them right back in. If they keep popping out or the whole set breaks, you have a replacement set. So those are fuses and circuit breakers. You got to have a replacement set or three extra for each fuse. The landing light is only required for hire. So remember when we talked about required inspections, we had that 100 hour inspection that was also only for hire. So remember that's when the owner provides the aircraft and the pilot so that would be like if you're at a flight school that owns the aircraft and they have they provide the aircraft and then they provide a flight instructor which they're paying and you're the student that would be for hire or if you're on like a scenic tour in Hawaii and they provide the pilot and you're just flying along for the tour that is for hire but if you are a student pilot flying solo and you're just renting the aircraft there is no other pilot pilot provided that would not be for hire or if you own your own aircraft like at a flying club or just by yourself that would also not be for hire so landing lights at night for day for night vfr is only required if for hire just like the 100 hour so if you need a 100 hour then you need a landing light up at night for vfr and, and vice versa for anti-collision lights we repeated that one because they're one of the most important things on on your aircraft to to distinguish traffic in low visibility or at night and because well frankly a mnemonic device without a single vowel is pretty impossible so we threw in the anti-collision lights again to create flaps so we wouldn't have floops or pluffs or or something that we couldn't make without a vowel so we threw that in there again to give us a good memory aid so that's probably where it came from and then Position lights, we talked about. Those are AKA nav lights. We talked about these in the operation of aircraft systems. They help traffic determine where each other are and where, which direction each other are flying at night. And then source of electricity, that could be, you know, like a battery or an alternator. You have to have some source to power your lights, your radios, you know, your anti-collision lights, your position lights, your instrument panel lights all that stuff. So you have to have a source of electricity. And so that is flap. So again, night VFR, everything required in the ACA FTSE plus flaps and then day VFR, it's just ACA FTSE. Now I'm going to go through these one more time. ACA FTSE 
A-C-A-F-O-O-T-S-E-A. That's airspeed indicator, compass, altimeter, fuel gauge, oil temperature, oil pressure, tachometer, seatbelts and harnesses, ELT, and anti-collision lights. Flaps for night VFR. It's ACA footsie, which we just covered, plus F-L-A-P-S, fuses or circuit breakers, landing light, anti-collision light, position light, and source of electricity. Again, I'm going to post this video link in the show notes. It's going to talk about why I like Akafutsi instead of Tomato Flames or Goose Cat. And then it'll go over what we just went over along with the other two videos for required inspections and required documentation. So go check those out. And thank you guys for listening. That's, we're going to wrap that up there. I think that makes a good, complete episode. For the next episode, we're going to move on to lesson four of section four of the part-time pilot online ground school, which covers inoperable equipment. So we just went over required equipment, the minimum set of required equipment from the FAA. But depending on your aircraft, your aircraft might also designate specific equipment that is required for specific kinds of operations. Like let's say you're your aircraft might require an additional equipment for night or additional equipment for cross country or something depending and specific to your aircraft. So where do we find that? How do we know what is also required beyond the FAA minimums of 91205, which you just covered in Akafutsi and flaps. And then if any of our equipment that it's installed in our aircraft is inoperable, can we still fly? Well, You'll see in the next episode, if it's required, the answer is no. But if it's not required, so we have to understand what's required for our aircraft and our type of flight. And then if it's not required, what do we do to the inoperable equipment to be able to still fly? So we'll cover that in lesson four. And then lesson five, we'll talk about airworthiness directives, which are sort of the last thing that you have to meet, the requirement you have to meet for your aircraft to be airworthy. So we'll talk about what those are and give some examples of those. And that finishes up section four of aircraft airworthiness requirements. Section five will be weather theory charts and information. So we got, a, that's a big one. So we got a lot of stuff coming up on the audio ground school podcast. So thank you guys for listening and I will talk to you guys next week. Hey guys, it's Nick. I want to take a second to speak directly to the student pilots out there. You might be a student pilot that is, you know, wondering what to do next, how to get started, or maybe you're looking for the right ground training or flight training, or maybe you've already started ground training or flight training and you're stuck, you're in a rut, and you're looking for a change, something to help get you out of that hurdle. From my own experience in flight training, after three years, five instructors and $22,000 and wanting to quit multiple, multiple times, and then now, after seeing hundreds and hundreds of student pilots through part-time pilot, I've realized that the number one thing that makes student pilots fail is that they do not have a good fundamental understanding of the ground training when they get to the more advanced flight lessons. Now, who here has seen Top Gun Maverick? Do you remember in the movie when he says, don't think, just do? Now, when I heard this, I was like, oh my goodness, this is brilliant because this is exactly what you have to be as a pilot now of course it's not that we're not thinking but it's that we understand things like weather aerodynamics what our instruments are telling us what atc is telling us we have such a good core fundamental understanding of these things that we don't have to think about them and 
When we don't have to think about them, we can instinctively feel and fly the aircraft, look out for dangers, and avoid emergency situations. If we do have to think about these things, it's going to put us behind mentally and we're going to be behind the aircraft. And when you're behind the aircraft mentally, bad things happen. And this happens when you don't have a good understanding of the ground school content. So now the first 10 to 15 hours of your flight training can go smooth, even if you don't have a good understanding of ground training, right? You can go up for a discovery flight, have a blast. You can go up, learn how to take off, learn how to land. You may be even able to solo for the first time fly a plane for the first time everything's great and dandy but once you get into you know bad weather flying or flying at heavy heavily trafficked airports or speaking with ATC for Bravo clearance or cross-country flight planning and flying solo on a cross-country flight things get a little more advanced and when this happens and you don't have a good understanding of the ground school concepts you're gonna hit a wall you're gonna start to get behind the aircraft and when this happens if you have a good flight instructor, they're going to stop you and they're going to say, okay, we need to do one-on-one -on -one ground lessons. And now you're going to be paying your flight instructor to not even fly with you, but instead $50, $60, $70 an hour to just teach you the ground school content that you should already know. And, at, and the worst part is, is you're not flying with them. So the flight training that you gain, the currency, the proficiency that you gain is going to be lost and you're going to have to redo those lessons. What happens to most student pilots is they continuously hit these mental blocks where they get behind the aircraft, they start making mistakes, and then they catch up with the ground knowledge only to have that happen again. And they start to get in this vicious cycle of having to redo trainings and repay for trainings until it gets to the point where them or their family, they finally say, you know what, this has to stop. We can no longer afford the training costs uh, without any progress, you know, and they end up quitting. Now, so how do we avoid that? Well, here comes part-time pilot. Again, I said I went through my own experience of this and I realized that most flight training and ground training is not tailored to the modern day student pilot. And when I say modern day student pilot, I should say modern day part-time student pilot because let's face it, there's a very small percentage of us that can go and dedicate 24-7, 365 to our flight training or not even miss a beat and be able to pay for flight training without working so most of us have a full-time job or maybe a part-time job we have kids we have family we have school we have all these other responsibilities on top of flight training and most of these flight trainings and ground trainings are not tailored towards you and so how is it the part-time pilot tailors to the modern day student pilot well the first way we do that is by keeping ground school interesting you want to avoid being boring you want to avoid that burnout so how we do that is we present our material in multiple multiple ways and you're actually listening to one of them right now you can consume our content via this podcast and an audio recording you can do this while you're running while you're driving in traffic again tailoring to that busy part-time student pilot or you can read through our written lessons you know i like to read so for those of you that like to read, you can read through the lessons. You can see the step-by-step -step examples and the procedures that we have. 
or you can look through our study guide and see our diagrams and mnemonic devices have that visual cue those visual cues and aids that help further your understanding or you can watch our videos or you can take our quizzes and practice tests to reinforce what you just learned. And then finally, you can join us live weekly for our live Q&A and our live lessons so you can see in real time these things taught out and these examples done in real time. And then finally, you can utilize our group community to form study groups, get questions answered 24-7. All of this is tailored for the modern day student pilot to keep ground school interesting, keep it from being boring, keep from having that burnout, and to find ways that you can consume the content throughout your busy schedule. And guess what? It works. We've had over 350 student pilots come through, take and pass their FAA exams without a single student failing. That's right. A single student has yet to tell me that they failed either their FAA written or their FAA checkride. So that is just proof in the pudding right there that our concepts, the way we explain things in plain written English and the way we give you multiple ways to consume this content is working. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in and you want to come join us, we'd love to have you. Just go to www.parttimepilot.com, click on Online Ground School, and we'll see you inside the Online Ground School. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.